Hello, and welcome to the Old Rookie Retold podcast. Old Rookie Retold is an exciting project that the Museums and Galleries Edinburgh are embarking on, looking into our entire collections. During the process, we've been pulling out amazing stories that have been hidden inside our collections, just waiting to be told. These podcasts will be conversations, interviews, and general good chat that will tell you a little bit more about the amazing stories behind Edinburgh, our Old Rookie. Today, you'll be hearing from our conservator, Gwen Thomas, and one of the curators at the City Arts Centre, Helen Scott. They'll introduce themselves, so I'm just going to let them roll straight into their take on photographic processes and our photographic collections. But if you're wanting to look at any of the images or artists that they're referencing, you can find links down in the show notes or on the edinburghmuseums.org.uk website. Hi, I'm Gwen. I'm the Collections Care Officer for Museums and Galleries Edinburgh, and I work across the whole spectrum of our collections, uh, all sorts of things from teddy bears to sculpture. I'm Helen Scott and I'm the Curator of Fine Art for Museums and Galleries Edinburgh. Um, I look after the Fine Art Collection, which is based at the City Art Centre, dealing with a a collection of around about 5,000 artworks, um, including photography. And today, Helen, we're going to talk a bit about uh, our photography collections, um, a bit generally about the collections that we have Um, across all of our museum sites but also you're going to tell us a little bit about some of the weird and wonderful photographic techniques that you've got in the fine art collection. Yes I am. Um, The photographic collection is only part of the wider fine art collection but we've got around about 700 or so photographic works that are classed as fine art and they do differ from some of the social history items in terms of using different processes Um, and I'll also be able to tell you a bit about some of the artists in the collection too. Brilliant. So, yeah, you mentioned the social history collections and, of course, in within our social history and childhood collections especially, and also in the Writers' Museum collection, we've got a huge amount of photography that documents everyday life and uh, portraits and so on. Uh, so they're used in a very different way. They're more about telling how people lived and um, capturing a moment in, in time in terms of people's lives. And we do have the sort of really from the earliest type of photography right through to digital prints in our collections. Um, And in fact, in the childhood collections, we've got some really lovely daguerreotypes, which is one of the earliest forms of photography. I don't think you've got any daguerreotypes in the fine art collection. No, I don't think we've actually got any in the fine art collection at all. So daguerreotypes are particularly uh, early uh, form of photography and there's no paper involved at all. So you've got a silver plated uh, sheet of copper and then that has a silver image on top and that's all on glass. And then that's usually seen inside like a sort of um, leather case, usually with some kind of edging around it. So if you sort of think about those old hinged sort of boxes that you open up and there's a picture inside uh, that looks like it's on glass, that's often a daguerreotype that you're thinking about. And you can tell really easily if if it is a daguerreotype, because when you hold it under a raking light, you can see the negative image rather than the positive image. Uh, So that gives you a really good idea of the technique you're looking at. But these were incredibly rare for most people at the time. So you find them quite a lot, but they were not something that everyday people could use. Um, It was a really expensive and slow process. You'd usually only have um, in a portrait, and it was normally a portrait, one or two sitters. And because they had to sit still for so long, they would often be 
clamped at the waist and neck to stay still. Um, so that's you. Know, people often think about how solemn people look in early photographs, but I think we would all look quite solemn if we were having to hold a position for half an hour. No, I love the thought of people actually being clamped into position because otherwise you would get a blurred image, wouldn't you? You would, exactly. Um, and given the amount of money it costs, you didn't want to risk that. Out of interest, in painting portraiture, did people get clamped into position? Not, or were you allowed to move more freely? Not, not, not normally, not as far as I'm, as I'm aware. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, good to know, good to know. I mean, norm normally for, a, for a, a painted portrait, you know, there would be multiple sittings and it would be much more kind of free and easy that people would be able to get up and move around. But some artists were perhaps more exacting than others and they would make their models sit for hour upon hour um, on end. But they don't have the issue of a chemical process uh, becoming blurred, I suppose. They can go and fix it fairly easily and they're not moving quite as fast as a developing chemical, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, you know, art, early artists working with early photography had um, a completely different process that they had to work with. And it wasn't just the artistic side of things, but as you say, it was the chemical side of things as well, which was incredibly complicated. Yeah, and dangerous. Yes, yes. Because they were so experimental, um, everything that was being tried out was, was new to people and they didn't necessarily know whether what they were doing was safe and whether they would have any long-term long negative effects on their health. One of the other techniques that we have that you often see them as well in, in some kind of case or a paper sleeve is a tin type and those are not generally tin in fact normally they're photographs that are on an iron sheet and those are pretty easy to identify as well because they're made out of iron they're magnetic so if you hold a magnet to the back then it's, if it's magnetic it's going to be a tin type and also uh, you often get some rust on them as well where the silver coating has, has failed so that makes it easier to identify what you've got uh, and then you know that you're not dealing with glass or paper which is which is quite useful and that was different from a daguerreotype because tin type were, were reproducible so that meant that they were a little bit more democratic in the sense that you could get more people that would be able to afford that so that would have been uh, what is called a wet collodion emulsion so again talking a bit about about um, chemicals being used and similarly uh, also something that could be reproduced was an ambrotype which again was moving on a bit from daguerreotypes it was still an image on glass um, but it was the uh, negative image on the glass with the dark backing and so that way that's how you get the image so you can tell that you've got an ambrotype because it's got a dark backing often fabric or something like that and um, because that was a cheaper process that was when we started seeing more middle class sitters um, being able to have their portraits done uh, and so we have a lot of those in our social history collections as well. No, it's really interesting to see how photography has been kind of democratised over over the decades because it is really quite a new technology to be honest certainly in terms of of art materials and the pace of development um you know throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century is really phenomenal when you think now that everybody actually has a, a camera on their phone that they can just easily snap images and that's such a difference from as you said the daguerreotypes where someone might be sitting clamped for an hour just to achieve one still portrait exactly yeah and i mean earlier photographs 
are likely to degrade in the sense that the silver, because they're usually made with uh, some kind of silver coating, when silver coatings break down, you often get flaking, especially around the edges of images. Um, and the chemicals, for example, the wet collodion that I mentioned, that can sometimes separate from the glass surface. And so things like um, glass plate negatives that were used in early photographic making, they need to be kept in really sort of cool, stable conditions to stop any of those chemical reactions from happening. And from a curatorial perspective, it's really useful to know what sort of uh, photography you're dealing with, um, not just in terms of, um, you know, giving insights into the artist's practice, but as you say, in terms of the care of the objects. Um, I mean, so many types of photography are especially vulnerable to light damage, for instance. So when we're displaying them, we need to be thinking about how long we're able to display them for in an exhibition and what light levels we're showing them at as well. So often when people go into a photographic exhibition, they might be surprised that it does seem quite dark, but that is for the preservation of those, those images. Yeah, and that is because light was so important in the initial part of the process. They are photosensitive, so sensitive to light um, materials. And yeah, that's why uh, often uh, I will come along when you're installing an exhibition with a light meter and say, no, it has to go down, put the light down. Um, but it is there obviously to preserve people's enjoyment of the images for as long as possible. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is really important. And we found that with um, our collection of calotypes that we have in the fine art collection. Um, this is a, a set of about 35 calotypes by uh, David Octavius Hill and Robert Adamson that were produced in the, in the mid-1840s. And Hill and Adamson were really pioneers of Scottish photography, effectively. The, the calotype process had been developed in about 1840 by William Henry Fox Talbot, but it was important that the patent didn't actually extend to Scotland, it was only in England. So you had groups of uh, early photographic enthusiasts working in Scotland who were able to freely experiment with this new um, invention. And it was the, um, the physicist David Brewster who introduced Robert Adamson and his brother John to uh, the calotype process uh, very early on um, in the 1840s in St Andrews. And he suggested that David Octavius Hill got in touch with Robert Adamson um, because Hill at that time had been tasked with a monumental project of painting this enormous portrait, group portrait, of um, really marking the formation of the Free Church of Scotland, which included portraits of over 400 figures and ministers involved in this event. Wow. And... That's a lot of people. Yes, the actual painting itself is enormous and it's just head upon head upon head. But in order to do that, you know, he didn't have time to sketch portraits um, of all of these individual sitters before they went off back to their, their homes. Um, it was a very time dependent sort of project. And so it was suggested that he um, talk to Robert Adamson about calotype photography, which would, relatively speaking, give a kind of instant portrait of these figures. And so that's how that partnership really evolved. They produced a, a fair number of these portraits of various ministers involved with the, uh, the disruption of 1843, as it was called. And this was kind of reference material that he could use in producing this portrait. But to be honest, he kind of lost interest in the portrait a bit. It wasn't actually finished uh, for another 23 years. And instead, the two of them went off on a tangent and got really involved in calotype photography. They were working at a studio on Carlton Hill called Rock House, 
and they began photographing all sorts of other subjects from um, images of the Scott Monument being built to photographs of um, some of the New Haven fishing communities in Edinburgh. And of course, calotypes were one of the earlier examples of images on paper because it's a, it's one of the earliest, what is called a, a printed out process. So you have a treatment uh, of chemicals on on the paper. So to produce a calotype, uh, silver nitrate was coated onto the piece of paper and then it was exposed to light inside the camera and then you get the negative. And the calotype was the first process that used a negative as we think of them now. Um, so the paper was, the negative was removed from the camera um, and then it was fully developed using some more chemical processes. And then the printing out part was when the positive image was produced from that negative image um, onto another piece of sensitised paper. And I think that Fox Talbot, who developed the technique, called them sun pictures, which uh, I think is quite a nice, quite a nice name. Yeah, absolutely. And and the exposure times were cut quite significantly from the earlier daguerreotype process. So instead of were they? people having to, to sit for an hour, it was down to a couple of minutes. Now, obviously, compared to nowadays, that's still quite a long time. And certainly when you look at some of Helen Adamson's images, there are certain subjects are obviously better at staying still than others. He's got some of they've got some of children where the children are quite blurred and the adults are obviously staying much, much more still for those couple of minutes. And I assume the Scott Monument stayed fairly still. Funnily enough, it did, yes. <laughs> so within that collection, what are the ones, what are the uh, images in that collection of 35, I think you said, that you think are most interesting from your point of view? Um, I mean, I, I do, I really love the, the images of the, the Scott Monument being built because it looks so surreal that you can see half of the monument and the top half just isn't there. It's very, very strange. And there are images of various stonemasons working on them. Um, you know, for historical reasons, the images of some of the Free Church ministers um, are really interesting. But there are also portraits of people like um, Hugh Miller as well. And who who was Hugh Miller? Um, Hugh Miller was um, he was actually involved in the disruption, but um, he was um, I guess a polymath now, as he would as he would know. He started off his adult career as a stonemason, but uh, very quickly went into geology. Uh, theology. He was an essayist, um, and he was he was acquainted with um, Helen Adamson, and they took several portraits of him in the guise of a stonemason, as he had been in his very early adult life. Um, of course, yes, Hugh Miller. Uh, we've got a blog post about Hugh Miller. If you want to know more, um, you can check it out at our website, and the information for that is in the show notes. And um, Helen, you mentioned as well about the New Haven Fishwives, which of course uh, are pretty well represented in our but across our collections. Yes, absolutely. Um, Hill and Adamson were really among the earliest artist photographers to be going down and taking images of the, the New Haven community. Afterwards, they became, they became incredibly popular, these images. Were they often sold as postcards or some kind of tourist... Um, you know, tourist paraphernalia. The the New Haven images that Hill and Adams took were incredibly popular. Um, I don't think that they were produced as postcards per se, but they had plans to um, produce kind of albums of them. You've mentioned albums. Um, was that a key way to get photographs out to the public? Was that how people would tend to view them rather than necessarily going to an exhibition? And was it a way for the photographers to make money as well? 
It was. I mean, sometimes photographs could be produced um, as series under sort of subscription, and people would receive um, copies of them, or they would produce albums that were published. Um, Helen Adamson's partnership was cut short um, when Adamson died in 1848, so they never really got to kind of monetize the the project, I think, as much as they would have planned to. But the, so their their partnership was quite short lived in that respect. Then about was that about five years? Yes, it was only about five years, but they produced a huge volume of images within that time frame, and certainly the New Haven. Uh, fishwife images became really very popular and spurred on lots of other amateur and enthusiastic photographers who were kind of experimenting with different processes to go down to New Haven and to start taking more photographs of them and also inspired more artists to work in that area as well. Um, the New Haven fishwives were quite distinctive with um, the, the clothing that they would wear and they were highly respected as well for their kind of work ethic um, at that time. And it's interesting that it did produce a sort of um, sort of almost New Haven tourism of its day, to be honest, where people were, were trooping down to, to see this community. Speaking of um, experimental techniques, maybe we can think about some of the other techniques that we might find in the fine art collection. I think, Helen, you've got some recently acquired cyanotypes um, in the collection. And cyanotypes, people are probably familiar with them, not necessarily the name, but they're really distinctive. They're basically uh, paper coated in a special coating and then you place an object on that piece of paper, uh, expose it to light uh, and then you get a blue image with, uh, with a sort of white negative. Uh, and it's most similar to probably as a school child, you might put things, items um, on sugar paper and leave it on the windowsill. And then when the uh, light fades, the the um, uncovered pieces of paper, then you end up with a, with a brighter colour underneath. So that's probably the, it's one of the simplest processes in photography techniques, uh, but it's also incredibly effective because it has this bright sort of Prussian blue colour, hence the name cyanotype. Yeah, they are really distinctive, actually. And, and as you say, they're one of the, the easiest photographic processes to recognise. Um, this process was actually invented again in about the 1840s. Um, and it was designed, actually, as a means of reproducing things like diagrams and plans. And this is where the term blueprint actually comes from. But mm. it's been used by, um, well, it was, it was very popular in the Victorian era, actually, um, particularly for creating images of uh, botanical specimens, which could be laid directly onto the paper. And you got a really detailed image of the, the flowers and leaves uh, through that. And although it's quite, um, it's quite an old-fashioned technique, it's still quite popular with artists, I think because it does have this really strong visual aesthetic to it. So we've recently acquired two contemporary cyanotypes for the collection by an Edinburgh-based artist called Nicola Murray. Um, both of these are from about 2010. And she's kind of making a nod to those kind of Victorian uh, origins, I guess, uh, because both of them are photograms in which the artist has placed um, flowers and foliage directly onto the paper. And this is plant material that she collected from the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. Um, and this, this technique is very much referencing the, the history of the cyanotype process, but the approach is also, um, I think, very modern as well. And they are incredibly beautiful, sort of timeless images. So it'd be nice to, to add those into the collection. I think these are our first cyanotypes, as we don't have any original old historical ones in the collection yet. 
but that's really interesting as well that she's using both uh, technique and a subject that is sort of celebrating the um, importance of scientific development within Edinburgh because obviously there's been for a long time a strong culture of development of the sciences both in terms of medicine, uh, chemistry, physics, botany um, uh, in in Edinburgh so I think that's actually really nice that she's combining the two. So one of the things I suppose that Hill and Adamson were doing was capturing day-to-day -day life in Edinburgh but obviously as phot photographic techniques became more democratised, uh, more affordable, uh, street photography just in, in general, what we would think of as black and white snapshots and so on of just day-to-day -day life has become an increasingly important way of capturing what what we do in our lives, how the city has changed over time. And is that something that you would consider part of the fine art collection as well as a social history record? Yes, there's definitely a blurring between um, social history and fine art when it comes to street photography. Um, I mean, some of these images were really taken just as records, you know, just to show a moment in time in a given place, not necessarily thinking, oh, this is an artwork. But, you know, perhaps with uh, hindsight and time, they are then considered to be artworks. Or you've got sometimes, you know, artists going into to places and being much more, um, I guess, overt in their... Um, you know, attempts to make art rather than just creating a historical record. Um, an interesting one actually is Robert Blomfield, who um, was working in Edinburgh in the 1960s. And Blomfield is interesting because he wasn't a professional photographer particularly. He was a medical student in the 60s. And photography was really his hobby, but he was spending his free time going out taking photos of um, street scenes in Edinburgh, taking photos of things like student life, things like the, the unions, the university clubs and societies. He was going out into the streets and capturing normal people, but also things like um, the construction of the Fourth Road Bridge. So in an interesting way, kind of paralleling Hill and Adamson's use of photography and capturing um, how the city was changing at a given time. And Blomfield was a, a medic. He went on to have a, a career as a doctor. And it was only really um, towards the end of his life that he and his family were very keen for other people, the public, to see his work, because most of his work had just um, been seen by family and friends. And it hadn't been exhibited before because he wasn't considered to be an, an artist per se. It was very much a hobby. Had they just sat in sort of boxes in like spare rooms like they do in the rest of our houses? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was only it's only very recently that at City Arts Centre we had the first sort of major exhibition of his work, um, which is in 2018, 2019. And that exhibition... I remember it. It was exciting uh, and very popular. Lots of people enjoyed seeing snapshots of Edinburgh at that time. Absolutely, it was wildly popular. I think people were really keen to see how Edinburgh changed and to reminisce. And a number of people came forward and said, you know, actually, I know some of the people in this photograph, because these weren't formal sittings. They were just people that Blomfield happened to photograph. So it was really interesting that people came forward and said that they recognised people as well as the settings. 
And do we have some of his works in the collection now? Yes, we do. Um, we've recently acquired two works by him, both from the early 60s. Uh, one of them is uh, an image of the, the Fourth Road Bridge under construction, which is interesting from a historical perspective, but it's actually a really beautiful image as well. The fog is coming in and it's just really beautifully composed. Um, the other work that we've got is the, the Student Union at TV at Row House, again from the 1960s. And um, once again, it's, it's fascinating to see the interior of this building. It's um, all sorts of students sitting, talking, smoking, interestingly, because then the smoke kind of rises up and then these wonderful shafts of light are coming in through the window and illuminating the smoke above them. So it's a really atmospheric, um, sort of nostalgic kind of view as well as being a snapshot in time as a, as a historical document. I remember that one. It's really atmospheric. It has a sort of um, feeling of a sort of noir film or, or, or something like that. So the Blumfield images that we've got now for the collection are modern um, archival prints so that they will um, last for much, much longer. But um, these sorts of images, these kind of black and white photos, as you would think of, um, what sort of care requirements would they have for the for the originals that, that anyone might find stacked in their in their bedroom at home? Yeah, so these can often be, depending on when they're from, they can often be objects that are quite difficult to preserve because of the materials used. Um, so they all contain gelatine. Um, they so they are uh, they have a silver gelatine um, process and generally speaking it's a sort of single process where you develop the latent image from the negative in a bath of like a chemical developer and then that allows the silver to basically appear on the paper um, and they're reproducible as well so you know you can get multiple prints but um, and, and the, this was a cheaper and faster process than some of the uh, printed out processes that we, we thought about earlier but disadvantages include the fact that it's often printed on poor quality or acidic paper especially as you get to the sort of 60s and 70s and it becomes more common in the same way as you might think about um, cheap paperbacks from the 70s where the paper does go quite yellowish or orange and becomes really brittle the same can happen with photographic paper from that time um, also they're often coated with a, a white coating before the image goes on and that white coating is called brighter and so that makes the paper stiffer as well and that means that the paper can curl up so that's why you might often see um, uh, some of old, some of your old family photographs that are, are curling and that's because the paper might be changing um, with environmental changes but the coating of baryta isn't changing um, uh, because they're two different materials that uh, respond to changes at different paces and that's why they might end up curled and that's how you end up with cracks on surfaces. Um, it's also how you might end up with chips. So sometimes you'll see uh, when you've got chipped photographs, you might see white underneath. That's often not actually the paper. That will be the brighter layer underneath. So you do have to be careful with these. The best way to do it is to store them in acid-free pouches or folders uh, and in acid-free boxes to try and minimise the amount uh, of unpleasant chemicals that might be uh, around them because they might also be producing it themselves. So you want to put a nice barrier between each image so they're not necessarily going to be affecting all of the other things in the box. 
you might also, as you get to more towards the 80s, when you're thinking about black and white images that have been developed just on the high street in, you know, a, a, in a photographic development uh, shop, um, they then started moving on to be on resin coated paper. Um, so those tend to be floppy and lie flat. So those appear to be more stable. But because some of the chemicals used in those processes are less known still, how they might react over time because they're still quite new, because we know how paper reacts. Paper's been around for a really long time. But resin-coated papers and some of the chemicals used now mean that long-term, we don't know what will happen to them. It might be that the whole image might lift off the paper because of that resin coating. Um, it, you know, if they're not stored in conditions that are, are good for them. So... It, they, it can be quite challenging, actually. The more modern you get with techniques, the harder it is to know exactly how to preserve them because we, we can't see into the future. With some materials like with, um, with paper, leather, wood, wool, silk, they've been around for a really long time. We know what they do. And then with these more modern, especially 20th and 21st century materials, we haven't seen the long game yet, so we don't know exactly what they'll do. And I mean, we do have a similar issue with um, any digital prints that we have uh, that haven't been printed out, but they're preserved digitally, is um, as a museum sector, just finding the best way of storing those digital uh, files is a challenge in itself because we're, as a sector, we're used to preserving physical things, not digital things. I know it's such a long-term problem for conservators in a hundred years' time. They'll be wishing that uh, these processes were never used because they're such a pain to look after. But also for you as a, as a curator and, you know, any kind of collections management information that you put, is that photographic image, say, that you have, is it the um, disc that it was sent to you on? Is that the object? Is it the memory stick? Is it the file that's been uploaded to the database? Um, so it's very, very hard to, to know uh, exactly what is the right thing to do. And I don't think anybody's quite solved it yet, but a lot of people are working on it. And I think we'll get there. We'll get there in the end. But it's not just us, of course, that have to worry about that. There's plenty of libraries and archives that are working on it, too. So we're, we're not alone. We're not the only ones that collect uh, photographic images that are digital. So there's a lot of people working on that. It's a universal problem, definitely. It is. It is. <laughs> But in the meantime, obviously, we are looking after our collection to the best of our ability and with the best technology that we currently have available. But as we talked about earlier, the photographic collection is quite a sensitive part of the collection. So while we don't have everything out all at once, we do try and display uh, photographic collections as much as we can. Um, so, for example, if you go to the People's Story Museum uh, on the Royal Mile, you can see quite a lot of images there of uh, life in Edinburgh through photographs and also at the Museum of Childhood. And then Helen with the Fine Art Collection, can people see some examples uh, online as well as in person? You can see elements of the, the photographic collections from the, the Fine Art Collection perspective um, on the Capital Collections website. And we also show a range of our photographic works in exhibitions at the City Art Centre. There aren't any permanent displays there, but we show the collection on a rotating basis. So quite often you can see different parts of the, the photographic collection as well. That's brilliant. And we'll link to Capital Collections in the show notes as well. And of course, at the moment, we're undertaking our old Ricky Retold project and photographs are a really 
key way uh, of us finding out more about the hidden stories in Edinburgh. And so you'll often see uh, digitised versions of some of our photographic collections in the different exhibitions that we are doing online and in person for Old Beaky Be Told. And that's it for another Old Wiki Retold podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about the history of the photographic process and some of the intricacies of the photographic collections at the City Art Centre. If you'd like to hear more about our work, head to edinburghmuseums.org.uk or find us at Edin Culture on Twitter to join the conversation. <laughs>